Good morning. How are we? Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm super excited because we are kicking off a new summer series entitled Life on Mission. And throughout the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about why we are here. By the way, do you know why you are here? See, this is why we need this series. So if you ever ask the question, what am I here for? What's my purpose in this life? You know, the older I get, the faster I realize that life is passing by. I can remember plain as day when I was in high school. I used to cut grass for my neighbor, Mr. Duncan. I loved cutting grass for Mr. Duncan, mainly because Mr. Duncan loved his alcohol. And so oftentimes, I would come in from cutting his grass, and he'd be in a good mood, if you catch my drift, and he'd slip me a 50, which was 40 more than the usual 10 he would pay me. So I always waited till late in the afternoon to go cut Mr. Duncan's grass. But something he always said to me was, Aaron, don't wish for high school to be over. Enjoy these days, because once you graduate, time will fly. And of course, being a teenager, I already knew everything, and I just kind of shrugged off what he said. But now, 20 plus years later, as I'm approaching 40, and I know that's hard for some of you to believe, with 2.5 kids, literally, my body has aches and pains that I never had before, and I can say, wow, time is flying. Where has the time gone? What am I supposed to do while I'm here? What's my mission? What's my purpose? Mark Twain said the two most important days of your life are the day that you are born and the day that you find out why. Rick Warren asks the question, Why doesn't God just take us to heaven when we become a believer? Have you ever wondered that? Jude, my six-year-old, has asked this question before. And, and why doesn't he? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to avoid earth's troubles, uh, to avoid all the things that we go through here on earth? But Rick says there are two things that you can't do in heaven that you can do on earth. Sin and tell people about the good news of Jesus. Because everybody's going to know Jesus in heaven and there won't be any sin. And then he asks the rhetorical question, What do you think God left you here to do? To share the good news. The only reason our hearts are still beating after you become a Christian is because we've got a mission. And if somebody hadn't had a mission and shared it with you, you wouldn't be where you're at. And now we need to share it with someone else. And I know that when we talk about sharing our faith and the good news of Jesus, that can strike fear in a lot of, a lot of us. We think, oh boy, I'm going to have to go door to door with my Bible in hand, passing out Jesus tracts. Or I'm going to have to knock on doors and ask people, hey, if you were to die tonight, which by the way, that, that sounds threatening, right? I mean, if, if, I were to, if I were to kill you right now, would you go to heaven? Well, let me, let me calm your fears, okay? That's not what this series is about. All I'm asking for us to do over the next six weeks is to have an open mind to the fact that when you do what God wants, and you do it in a way that God wants, it will be the most fulfilling thing you've ever done. Let me give you an illustration. Tina Miller, one of our members here, shared a timely email with me just a couple of weeks ago about one of her co-workers. Her co-worker came to Tina and shared that she'd been attending church with her grandfather for the past year. A few Sundays ago, she went forward to confess Jesus as Lord and recommit her life, and she got baptized. And then she said, Tina, you played a big part in my decision. She told Tina, I see Christ in you every day, and I want to be like that. That's what living a life on mission is about. Doing what God has called us to do is the most fulfilling and rewarding thing we can do. This is what we want to, to talk about over the next six weeks. So I want to encourage you to be here as often as you can. I know summertime is busy. I know we take vacations. I know there's a lot of travel. 
Uh, no worries, we record our sermons and you can listen to them on our website. Also, I know a lot of small groups don't meet regularly throughout the summer, but when things get kicked back up in the fall, I would encourage groups to go through this six-week DVD study of Life on Mission. Tim Harlow is the author, creator of this material, and our leadership team had the chance to meet and hear him this past February in Savannah at the leadership conference. He's a solid guy, man. You'll love his stuff. If you're not in a group, I would encourage you to start a group just to go through this material. And finally, I would just encourage you to pray. Pray for God to open your mind and heart to what He wants to speak into your life through His Word. And I really believe that this series is not only going to be fun and energetic, but I believe this series can be life-changing. It can be transforming. It can transform your life, and it can transform the life of this church. And here's why I believe this. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is great news. We've been saved by grace. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. We are totally dependent on God to save us. There's no amount of work or religion that will save you. It's solely by grace. And then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we've been saved from something for something. God has something He's prepared in advance for you to do. We have a mission. We have a purpose. Do you realize that God is on a mission? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. This is God's heart and desire for the people that He created. God makes the first move. Because of our sinful nature, the Bible says that we do not seek God, but God takes the first step and He moves towards us. God takes the initiative. His love for us was so big and so great that he takes action and he sends his only son, Jesus, to the planet Earth to rescue us from sin, death, and condemnation. So in that one little verse, we see the initiating love of God moving towards us. That is the good news of the gospel. This was Jesus' mission, to share the good news. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. And in John 17, 18, Jesus prays to his Father and says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. That's his followers, that's us, into the world. The Apostle Paul knew his mission. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says these words. And I like the message translation. He says, The most important thing in my life is that I complete my mission. The most important thing. The most important thing in my life was that I complete my mission, the work that the Lord Jesus gave me to do. And what was that work? It was to tell people the good news about God's grace. That's the mission. That was Jesus' mission. It was Paul's mission. And that's our mission. Right before Jesus goes back to heaven, he instructs his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, with these words, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So let's be clear. We are not judges. We are not God's defense attorneys. We are not the prosecutors. Rather, we are witnesses. Where? Well, to the ends of the earth is great. We are sending a team in a little over a month to Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. John Bukowski, our missions director, and myself are traveling to England in less than a month to visit one of our missionary partners to see what God is doing in, the, in that part of the world. Those things are great. That's our ends of the world. What's our Judea and Samaria? 
that's here in the U.S. We have a group traveling to Tennessee in August to share God's love with a mission called Riverwood. They do this every single year. But let's not forget our Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem is right here in Chester. This is our Jerusalem. It's the people you live next door to. They work in the same office building, shop at the same grocery stores. Right? This is our mission field. This is our Jerusalem. Peter Drucker, known as the father of American business, was asked once, What's the most important ingredient to a successful business? And he said, Every day, ask yourself two questions. What business are we in, and how's business? And those are great questions. Unfortunately, a lot of people lose sight and forget what business they're in. So what business are we in? Well, we're in the witnessing business. How's business? Did you know that America now makes up one of the largest mission fields in the world? The fastest growing group of people in America are the people that don't believe in any kind of religion. We live in a mission field. So how's business? It's not good. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 35 and 38, The harvest is plentiful, which means there's lots of lots of people who are far from God, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. If the harvest was plentiful 2,000 years ago, what do you think it is now? We have over 7 billion people living on planet Earth, uh, and more and more people are far away from God. And the reality this morning is, I don't think it's a Jesus problem. I don't think people are so much turned off by Jesus as much as people are turned off by the church. When you read throughout Scripture, man, you'll notice that people who were far from God, people who were considered sinners, rejects in society, they're the undesirables, the losers, the outcasts, and the morally bankrupt. They're the ones that are drawn to Jesus. He dines with them and hangs out with them. Then you have another group in Scripture known as the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they would be like the, the church people today. They knew Scripture. They followed God, and yet they were constantly condemning and put out by sinners. They're the ones that try to follow all the rules. They were self-righteous, and because of that, they thought they deserved God's love. And unfortunately, the church in America is known more today for what we're against than what we're for. You see, Jesus said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Compel people to come in so that they can hear the good news. He never said, go and stand at the entrance of the church doors and make sure that those kinds of people don't come in. And I'm going to tell you, that's not the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that compels people to come in regardless of their background, regardless of their baggage, regardless of their ethnicity. It doesn't matter if they're poor or rich, if they're a doubter, skeptic, or seeker. We want them to feel welcome. We want messed up people because, listen, we are all messed up, and we all need Jesus. We are witnesses, not judges. I can tell you that we will always speak the truth here at Chester Christian Church, but we we will strive to do it in love. That's what Jesus was so good at. He loved these people, and yet he was able to tell the hard truth about their life situation. And I can tell you that I wasn't always good at this. I think back to times in my life, man, when I was very much like the religious leaders. And by God's grace, he showed me a better way. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. How can I not hang out with them? Right? In Luke 15, the church people, the religious leaders, were complaining about Jesus always being around the sick people. And in verse 1 it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus does what he does best, and he tells them three stories. Something is lost, lost is bad, and we need to do everything possible to find it. There's a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. The woman had ten coins, loses one, and turns her house upside down till she finds it. The shepherd has a hundred sheep, notices one is lost, so he leaves the ninety-nine to find that one lost sheep because loss is that important to find. In the story of the lost son, the father, who represents God, has two sons. And because of freedom of choice, the younger son, who represents the sinners in the crowd, decides to take his dad's inheritance and blow it on wild, crazy living. And finally, as the last resort, he comes home in total desperation because he has no place to go. And what does he come home to? Does he come home to find judgment? Condemnation? No. Verse 20, it says, While he, the son, was still far off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He finds a loving father who couldn't be happier to have his kid home. The sick kid, the sinner kid, the prodigal kid. And after three stories of importance of the loss being found, Jesus gets to the punchline of the story. You see, there are two brothers in the story. Just as the younger brother represented the sinners, the older brother represented the church folk, the Pharisees, and religious leaders of Jesus' day. And notice this son's reaction to his brother being found in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. Notice again that the father initiates, right? The father leaves the party and he comes to the, son, the, the, the older son. But he, but he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed you, right? I've followed all the rules. Yet you've never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you see the resentment and bitterness? How could this older brother be angry that this lost brother had come home? And that's Jesus' point. He's trying to help them see how crazy it is for them to be upset that Jesus hangs out with these people. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the church think like this older brother. I deserve to be with the Father, but you don't. I've been good. I try real hard. I go to church every week. I read the King James Version just like Jesus did. And therefore, I deserve. God, you owe me. And therefore, there's no way I should give up my seat. There's no way I should give up my parking space. There's no way I should give up my comfort or my time or my money or the fatted calf for those people. It's a, it's a sense of entitlement. We're better than them. And what's going on is they're, they're trying to earn God's favor and put God in their debt. And if that's the case, and Jesus is not your Savior because you are trying to be your own Savior. Jesus told it this way in another passage. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, a sinner. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, or even like this tax collector. But I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He's praying, look, look how much better I am than everybody else. right? I, I deserve, I'm entitled. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other one home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, we're going to have communion in a moment. And I want to encourage you that as we remember and as we celebrate this, this free gift of grace that is for all people, Jesus laid down his life for us, that we would put aside any thought of we deserve or I'm good enough and rather come humbly and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me ask, well, what should the older brother have done in this parable? The, the older brother should have had his younger brother on his mind. He should have had the same concern the father had. He should have come to his father and said, I know his life is in danger, but I will go look for him, and I will bend over backwards to bring him home, even at the expense of my own inheritance, because this is how the father feels. Jesus said in Luke fifteen seven, I tell you the truth, there will be more rejoicing over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Why? Because that's our business. That's a life on mission. So I just want to encourage you this morning. Who do you know? Who, who in your life do you know that's far away from, from God? Who do you know that needs to hear about Jesus? And I want you to just write that person's name down. And I want you to commit to praying for that one person. Commit that the, to praying for them that they would come to know Jesus, that, that God would draw them to the foot of the cross.